Today we are in 1 Chronicles. If you'd like to turn there to the 16th chapter, we'll be ready to start here. And as we do, we want to think about Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is part of our identity, isn't it? I mean, it should be, certainly as a people in Christ, but even as kind of a national identity. We think about Thanksgiving, our history can't be separated from the pilgrims who came to this country and are the ones who we think of as first celebrating Thanksgiving, although really they celebrated it long before the feast they had with the Indians after that first survival of that harsh winter. They had had a tradition of feasts and even fasts of Thanksgiving as part of their, their history as a people. And so when they had made it through a winter, they didn't think they would survive with the help of Uh, The Native Americans, they wanted to invite them for a feast of thanksgiving to God, to thank God for what He had done. They believed that they had survived only by God's grace. There were many nights in that cold winter where there wasn't enough food, and they wondered if any would survive. My friends, as we think about what thanksgiving is as a tradition that has led to a national day of thanksgiving, it's really wrapped up there, that there is a day set aside to remember and offer thanksgiving to God for all His blessings. So often we, I think, forget that that's what it's really about. We make it about other things. You'll hear people talk that way. I mentioned a few years ago I was waiting to pick one of the girls up. I don't remember which one. They were at work and I'd gone to pick them up. And I was listening to the radio and the radio host was talking about thanksgiving and how it's really about a day of thanksgiving to your family. And we want to be thankful for our family. But that's not what Thanksgiving is about. Thanksgiving is about setting aside a day to remember God. Now, He has blessed us with family. He has blessed us with many things. But that day is to thank Him. And you may remember a few years ago we had a sermon in Romans 1 on a Thanksgiving that is no Thanksgiving at all. And it was pointing out that if Thanksgiving is not rightly attributed to God, then it's not Thanksgiving at all. And so we want to remember that. And as we think about Thanksgiving, we'll see that it is a biblical idea. We'll surely see that today in the life of David, who knew that thanksgiving and praise must be offered to God. And we see that in our text today. As we begin again to look at this text, I'm not going to read the whole thing right now, but I want us to think about it again and just look at this opening part. So they brought the ark of God and set it in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. And then they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. And then he distributed to everyone of Israel, both man and woman, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. And then after appointing those who would lead in worship and help play for worship, it says that he first delivered this psalm into the hands of Asaph this psalm of thanksgiving. Now, my friends, as we think about this today, I want us to think about three points. First of all, a time of transition. And actually, we're going to be looking at two times of transition. Second of all, the centrality of God. And then third, the song of thanksgiving, or you could say David's psalm of thanksgiving. So, as we begin today's text, we want to recognize that there is a time of transition. In fact, As I just mentioned, there's really two tied to this text. One is in the text, and one is surrounding the text. And I really would like to explain by starting with the second one, the one that is surrounding the text, because it's 
important to note this is found in the Chronicles. Now you can find this same history elsewhere. And we know that there are other great books of history. In fact, you have the books of Samuel and the books of the Kings. But Chronicles is different, isn't it? Chronicles is unique. In fact, you might look and wonder why you need Chronicles at all if you've got Kings and you've got Samuel. Why do you need Chronicles? And the answer is they were written to a different people at a different time in Israel's history and say something in in similar history, but they say something altogether important for this generation to hear and I think for every generation to hear. You see, the books of Samuel and the books of the Kings were written in the glory days of Israel, if you will. They were written to a people who had lived through the glory days of what it meant to live under the kingship of David and Solomon. At least they had that memory a generation or two later. But the Chronicles were written to the people returning from exile as they were thinking about their history and much of it recovered and written down here. In fact, about half the material is found in those previous books of history, but there's more detail here because it was important that the people returning from exile know something of their history and recognize the circumstances of it. You see that here. This is a much fuller history of what happens here as the ark is brought to Jerusalem than is found in those other history books. Now, why is that important? Well, it would remind us that the people who are receiving this history have lived through a very different history, haven't they? They've been through exile. They've been through the return. They've come back to Jerusalem that is not impressive at all. Walls not standing. No monarchy in the sense that the previous recipients of the other histories would have understood it. Certainly no Ark of the Covenant. My friends, a very different people in a different circumstance, and yet the more things change, the more they stay the same, we say. And it's true because if you think about the other transition in this text, it's a transition of David becoming king of Israel. David, as, this, as we find this text, has gone through a, a tremendous period in his life, hasn't he? He's been on the run from Saul for a long time, and then, of course, Saul and Jonathan die. And David is in Hebron for a number of years, kind of a, a more localized king. And then the priests tell him, David, go, go take Jerusalem. And he does, and he becomes king over all the land. And then the tribes unite to David as he says, let's go against the Philistine and, Philistines and drive them out of the land. And this seems good to the people. This seems what a king should do. And so they rally to David. And David is having success after success. So there's time of transition amongst the people of God as they see this new king come to power, if you will, in Jerusalem. And they rally around him. And they see their new king. And the people, I think, that are receiving chronicles notice something. As David takes Jerusalem, it wasn't impressive then either. There was no ark in Jerusalem. The temple was not standing. It was a city that had been broken down over many years. And so I think the chroniclers are reminding their generation, hey, God can still be at work. God can still be at work. And so remember that. Don't be down. Remember, God often works through these small, unimpressive things to do His great and mighty feats of power. And so we want to see that. And so, again, people gather around to David and begin to realize that we need to get behind this king. 
But if we see that, we want to see our second point, and that is the centrality of God. David is this man who's known to be a man after God's own heart. Now, the people of Israel knew that from the earliest days. They saw uh, this impressive young man who when no one would stand against Goliath. David said, I'll enter the Valley of Elah and I'll take him on. I will take him on. I will represent the people of God in battle against this giant. And that's really what the story is about, isn't it? No one would stand representing Israel. But this one who's a son of Judah would stand in the place of Israel and battle this great and mighty Goliath. And he does, and he wins, trusting in the Lord, not even wearing armor. He stands before this giant, and he wins the day. And of course, that causes jealousy with Saul, as the people cheer David more than they cheer him. And so we see that begins this path in which there is conflict. But the people recognize that there's something special about this this young man, this one who would become their king, who God had chosen to be their king. And so as David brings the nation together and uh, sets up Jerusalem as the capital, if you will, of the nation, he begins to think about what needs to be done next. And you know, so many kings would uh, turn their minds to their own power. What can I now have for myself? What women, what finances, what power can I accumulate for myself? But that isn't what David's thinking of. As David thinks about this capital city of Jerusalem, and he thinks about all that God has done, he begins to say it's important that if this is going to be our capital, that we have the representation of the presence of God, the ark of the presence of God in this place. And so he begins to wonder, where is that ark? Where is it? Is it in Jerusalem? No, obviously not. Is it in Hebron where he's just been? No. It's in Kirjath-Jerim. And it's been there since the days before Saul was king, when it was returned and left there. So David realizes if God is going to be the center place and centerpiece of the nation, the ark must be in the capital city of Jerusalem. So David says, we've got to go get it. And the people are excited. And they are sincere about this. And they say, let's get, let's get a quick plan together and let's go do this thing. Let's go retrieve the ark and bring it to Jerusalem. And my friends, if there was an, ever a message that sincerity and excitement by itself is not everything, it's this story. Because they sing and they dance and they praise and they worship all the way to Kirjath-Jerim. And they start to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. But they haven't actually looked to the word of God in obedience to see how they're supposed to move the ark. And so they put it up on this cart and it's moving forward. You know the story. It begins to shake. And Uzzah reaches up to steady the ark. And in touching the holy ark of God drops dead on the spot. Drops dead on the spot. Again, my friends, as we think about that story, so many people have trouble with that. But Again, God is holy. His presence is holy. We are sinful people. That is telling us something, isn't it? About our ability to stand in the presence of holiness in our own uh, righteousness, if you will. Uzzah was not a righteous man. He was like all of us in his own righteousness, touching the holiness of God. It cost him his life. Now, this terrifies everyone. (laughs) This terrifies everyone, including David. 
Everyone is terrified. How do you move an ark that will kill you if you touch it? So they go back to Jerusalem. They leave it exactly where it is. and They decide, we've got to find out what we've got to do here. And in fact, they leave it there in Obed-Edom for three months. David goes back asking the question, how am I to move the ark of God to me? How do I bring it to Jerusalem? Now, the fact that he takes three months here tells me David's afraid. David recognizes now the holiness of God and that he must be very careful in how he does this. And so uh, he goes back to the text of Scripture and sees exactly how it's to be moved. He researched it or had the priests research it. I'm not sure, but, but they, they found out the way to move it, how they could correct this mistake. He prepares the tent of the dwelling place for the ark in Jerusalem and realized that God had given clear instructions how it was to be moved. The Levites were to do it, not just anyone. And again, there was procedures for how to do it. And so again, they go back and they call all Israel together. And this time they do it right. They accompany the ark of God as it journeys from Obed-Edom to Jerusalem. And then something amazing happens. As it enters into the city, and they realize this time, by God's grace, they get it there. The people are reminded that God has been with them, not only on this leg of the journey, but through all of their journey, and that he has blessed them time and again. And so how do they mark this occasion where the Ark of the Covenant enters into Jerusalem? They mark it with a celebration. With a celebration, with a day of thanksgiving and a a time of praise and worship and joy. You can see that in your text. As they brought the ark of God into the city, what does it say? They set it in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. They offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And when they'd finished those duties that they had, then they distributed to everyone, both man and woman, a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. And they ate a meal together, and they worshiped together. And they thank God together. And David, the king, set the example of how to do it, didn't he? He didn't stand back and say, well, I'll I'll be back here in my palace made of cedar and you guys go out and worship. No, he said, I'm going to be right there with you worshiping. And he did so by writing a psalm, a great song of thanksgiving. And again, think about how it starts out. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. You know, one of the interesting things about ancient literature is first lines were the most important line. They set the stage for what you're reading. In fact, uh, much of ancient literature would be titled by the first line of something. And so you can almost imagine that David is offering up a psalm that you could title, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Well, it's no mystery why. God had preserved them as a people. He had blessed them. He had saved them over and over again. And David personally knew what God had done in his life, bringing him through many dark and challenging days. And now as he is king over the nation, he will not forget it. I mean, maybe occasionally he'll have some stumbles. We know that. But his life is marked by a desire to know the Lord and to serve the Lord and to love the Lord, and to grow in His faith and knowledge of the Lord. So look again at this opening verse of this psalm. There's three key points there, aren't there? 
Oh, give thanks to the Lord. This is a, a message that we are to live lives of thanksgiving. Always thankful to God for all of His mercies and grace. Call upon His name. What do we do in the difficult days? We call upon Him. But even in the good days, we are to call upon Him and offer thanksgiving and praise. And then we have a duty to make known His deeds among the peoples. It's interesting that as this psalm develops through its text, it starts out very much pointing to the need to make the name of the Lord known amongst the people of God. But it doesn't stay there, does it? It's not just uh, give to the Lord, O families of the people, but also it comes to the point where it says, and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. There's a vision here that what we are called to is to recognize that God is working even beyond Israel. It was always His intention to call a people uh, from all ends of the earth, from every nation, every tongue, tribe, and nation. And we see that even here as David is praying forward and giving thanksgiving to the God who uh, is the God amongst all the nations who people will cry out, the Lord reigns. So we see these things. He offers up a psalm of thanksgiving through good and bad, tragedy and triumph. David points to thanksgiving toward God. But not just a general kind of blank thanksgiving. That was the point I was getting at a moment ago with uh, a thanksgiving that's no thanksgiving at all. Uh, we often are like that, aren't we? We're a people of thanksgiving. We use the language of thanksgiving, but it doesn't mean anything. We say, oh, I'm, I'm so thankful. But what David recognized is that true thanksgiving must go first to God, who is the one to whom we owe thanksgiving. For every good and perfect gift is from Him, and the glory for it is due to Him. And David recognized that. If you look at this, you'll see it over and over again. Look at verses uh, we've already read 9 through 13, but if you continue, look at 23. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Again, this message that it's more than just Israel. Proclaim the good news of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory amongst the nations, His wonder amongst all peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. My friends, David knew the Lord. He knew Him in His greatness and His glory, His holiness. He knew Him in His worthiness to be praised and lifted up amongst all peoples. For He is worthy of worship through all the ends of the earth. For He is the one who created the earth and all that is in it. My friends, David recognized that he needed to be a person of thanksgiving, leading a people of thanksgiving. And so we see that again. And he knows that thanksgiving is directed to God. And my friends, that is the proper attitude of thanksgiving for us to direct thanksgiving to God and recognize that all that we have comes from Him. Now, it's interesting that the chronicler is telling us that this isn't just David personally. Even though the psalm is written by David, the people hear this psalm, I'm sure proclaimed that first day. And as he closes with, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. What does it say? And all the people said, Amen. But that wasn't the close, was it? It says, and praise the Lord. This was a community worship service. This was an all-Israel worship service. This was a time when all the people of God gathered together to worship their Lord and their true King. 
And so, my friends, it's a reminder to us of what Thanksgiving should look like. And it's interesting that all of it is surrounding a meal that David offered to the people, isn't it? Right there at the beginning of the text again, when David had finished the offerings and the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. And then what did they do? They distributed to everyone of Israel, both man and woman, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. Isn't it amazing how often in the Bible celebrations of thanksgiving to God are surrounding meals? The early church gathered in thanksgiving together around meals. We see it throughout the pages of Scripture. We see it here again. As David thinks, how can we offer thanksgiving as a people to God? He says, let's have a meal together. Let's have a meal together. Let's fellowship together. My friends, I think it's no mystery why we have thanksgiving the same way. We gather together to share a meal together to offer thanksgiving to God for all His goodness, all His grace, and His love. And so all of Israel ate and celebrated the God who by grace had called them and made them a people, His people. Now I want to close by uh, just trying to bring these threads together. We have a few threads here. David's desire was to offer thanksgiving. We see that in the text. He desired to give thanksgiving to God. But it was more than just a personal desire, wasn't it? He recognized the need of the people to offer thanksgiving. And he knew if the people of God were going to long endure the situation that they were in, uh, again, they're surrounded by enemies. God's going to call David to be a mighty man uh, and have mighty men with him uh, to go out and and expand the borders and, and such things. But he recognizes if we're going to survive as a people, it's going to be because we trust in God. We love God. We serve God. We worship God. We thank God. If we're going to survive, that's how it will be. So this isn't just a personal desire of David, although it is a personal desire of David to give glory to God. But he also recognizes this needs to be a joint desire, a communal desire, a national desire. And so they have this national worship service and worship together. If David had just cared about his own worship, then he would have just had an individual or family worship service. And we'd read about that. That he called his family together and they worshiped the Lord. But that isn't what it says. It says all the people gathered. That he distributed to everyone of Israel, both man and woman. To everyone. The people were there worshiping with David. And so again, I think we recognize that it's telling us something very important in this. It is essential that the people of God gather for worship. Essential that we worship together. It's essential that as a people we recognize the centrality of God in our lives. We would be even more specific and say the centrality of Christ in our lives. As the people of Christ. But already it's being pointed to us here. As David reasons and reckons that if we are going to be a nation of God, the ark of the presence of God must be here where we have our capital. And in the same way, my friends, we're being told as the people of God, if we are going to be a people who claim to be thankful to God, claim to love Him, then worship should be central to our lives. And so, my friends, as they gather together to worship their king, so we gather together to worship our King. But you know, one of the really interesting things about this text, and I want to draw this other thread in, is that the Chronicles 
make much of the Ark of the Covenant. And you might say, well, yeah, but so does Judges, right? So does the other history books. I mean, that's nothing unusual. But what is unusual about it is that when this book is being written, the Ark of the Covenant is gone, disappeared, gone. And yet it's so central to the story here. And you might wonder for a second, why would that be? Why would the chroniclers make such an important point about the ark of God and it's not there? No matter how much you talk about its importance in Jerusalem, it's not there any longer. I think it's reminding a people who were in a very similar situation to the people who were along with David as he was coming to power. And the thoughts of having to rebuild Jerusalem and, and eventually build a temple. They have a tabernacle in this story, but not yet a temple. And they think about fortifying a city and, and having a nation. What they're being reminded is God must be at the center of all of it. He must be at the center of every bit of it. That David recognized the most important step he could make is to bring the ark of the presence of God into Jerusalem. Now, they don't have that option. But I think what they're being reminded of, if God is not at the center of all that you do, then you'll be like in the Psalms, right? Unless the Lord builds the house, those, who, those labor in vain, right? Who build it? Unless the Lord guards the city, the night watchman stays up in vain. Same message. If God is not the, at the center of what you do, you will fail. You will fail. If you're looking to how to come back into the land and be successful according to the will and plan of God, then it must be centered on God. And my friends, I think the message to us would be the same. As the people of God, if we don't have our foundation on Christ and we are not doing what the Word of God tells us to, if we are not making God the center of all that we do, we are doomed to folly and fail. My friends, I think you can look around and see that today. And so we need to recognize what we are being told here. We're going to be a people of thanksgiving, yes, but a people who desire to put God at the center of who we are and what we do, that He might be glorified, that He might be lifted high, and that we might offer praise and thanksgiving to Him. And so, my friends, as we think about that, we think a few days ahead to this National Day of Thanksgiving where there are many temptations to make the secondary things or the tertiary things primary it's easy to do it really is right oh it's all about food it's all about a parade it's all about football games it's all about family i'm going to tell you those are all good things are they not to have a good meal is a good thing david recognized that he gave thanks to god for it that's the point the food is not the end the food is a reminder of whom we're to be thankful to Football isn't always a bad thing. I think about Paul. He was a huge sports fan. You can get that through his letters as he makes reference after reference after reference to sports. My friends, it's okay to enjoy a game of football and relax, but give God thanksgiving for that, for relaxation, for a day of rest, a day of thanksgiving to God. And as you think about all these things, it's okay to be thankful for family, but Remember to whom we're to be thankful. To whom we're to be thankful. So as we think about all these things, we are called to put God at the center of all that we do, including our Thanksgiving celebration this Thursday. 
to remember him, to be thankful to him, to give him the glory for all that we have. Amen.